Hello, everybody. Dr. Ron Dalrymple back with another episode of Mind Shock, The Endless Question. Our mission is to help you discover within you your own great powers of mind, your own superpowers, which you were born with, can develop and bring forth into your life, which are often missed. What we're raised in, we're often told to block out, to suppress our inner powers and abilities. One of the greatest ways to study this is to look at the great geniuses in history, the great polymaths. Those who study many fields, draw from them great abstractions and learn new things to bring to the world. Think like Galileo, Newton, Copernicus, Aristotle, and of course, Sir Francis Bacon we've been talking about. This is part two of Sir Francis Bacon in the Genius episode, the Genius series. Now, Bacon, we talked about before, was the unacknowledged firstborn son of Queen Elizabeth I of England, who was a very powerful queen, and she kept secret the fact that he was her son because she called herself the Virgin Queen, and that allowed her to keep in rule because if she acknowledged the fact she was married to Robert Dudley, whom she married in secret four months prior to the birth of Sir Francis, she would have had to abdicate the throne and give the kingship, as it were, to her husband. Such were those days in the 1500s. In any case, she kept it secret. Now, Bacon was raised in a court until the age of 15 years old. He was studying how courts work, studying people, studying the psychology of people and of the monarchical system. It's a great example of somebody who evolved from a very bizarre kind of childhood into a great and powerful mind, which helped to transform the world. In any case, he observed that there were many ladies, ladies in waiting in the court, sometimes hundreds, who were hoping to marry a duke or an earl or whoever and some of them would get involved in mind games he once said that they often live there solitary alone sequestered from all company but suffer from heart eating melancholy melancholy they found a need to crucify someone so they took their frustrations and anxieties out on various people now one day in particular when francis was 15 he had an adopted cousin robert cecil he was a cousin by adoption, and they chose to crucify him. Unfortunately, this child had some disabilities, moved very awkwardly, and so forth. Well, the daughter of Lord Scales, according to Bacon, whom he called the most frivolous of the lot, she would tease and dance with Robert and the Queen's prompting, and then they would all laugh at his awkwardness. Well, Robert was infuriated by this, made very, very angry. And he blew up and he said to the queen that he had heard something the daughter of Lord Scales had said about the queen. And she asked what that was. He said, Madam, this innocent and pure model, moved by love for thee, referring to himself, told me that you are an errant whore and that thou bear for a son the noble Leicester. That was Robert Dudley, Duke of Leicester. He says, I pray that thou give her chastisement. So Cecil was condemning the daughter of Lord Scales, to the queen, saying one of the most insulting things he could, repeating it, saying that the daughter said this about you, queen. So the queen was, of course, furious. She was known to have a very violent temper and often struck her ladies in waiting and would shout about the palace. Robert uh, here made a grievous error in a sense. In any case, Sir Francis Bacon tried to step in that was her unacknowledged son. In any case, her Bacon later said that her loud and vehement swearing and 
soldierly boasting, and a strange counterpoint through elegant dress and coquettish adornments, with flowers in her hair, round O's on her mouth. She stormed through her apartments, slapping and stabbing at her women. They displeased her and demanding to be told how beautiful she was. She's very vain and insecure. Now, looking back, she was probably a paranoid personality disorder. She had been placed in the Tower of London at the age of 20 by her older sister, Queen Mary, who became known as Bloody Mary for all the people she executed. With that a little bit later. In case during the scene when this all came out, Francis tried to protect a maiden who had been set up by a robbery. Robert was attacking her and basically betraying her to the queen, which put the maiden in great danger, Sir Francis realized. So he tried to step in and protect the maiden. He later said that in the queen's look, there was much malicious hatred, which burned towards him for his ill-advised interference. And in hasty indignation, she said to him, you are my own born son, but you, though truly royal of a fresh, a masterly spirit shall rule nor England, nor your mother, nor reign over subjects yet to be. I bar from succession forever my best beloved firstborn. So in her rage, she reveals to Francis that he is her firstborn son in front of many witnesses. Francis, of course, is shocked by this, but she also condemns him and says, you will never rule England. Remember, he is in line of succession. He would be the next king when she would pass away. Well, he, of course, was in shock. He would he could scarcely believe the words he had heard. Robert Cecil was also standing there, drinking in every word and calculating how he might turn this bizarre event to his own gain. Because Robert Cecil, according to Francis, was very cunning throughout his life and became the opponent of Francis. Francis began to learn of betrayal, mind games, in a very negative part of human nature. Now here's a dramatic story of the sudden elevation of the supposed son of Sir Nicholas Bacon. Remember, Bacon, Nicholas and his wife Anne had adopted Sir Francis at a young age at behest of the queen. So here he was elevated from his humble but secure position as a commoner into the precarious place of the firstborn son of Elizabeth Tudor, a prince of the royal blood. This made him the highest noble in a land which revered its monarchs as near gods. And yet, he was to be the victim of a cat and mouse game or many games, which his mother would accept him now, the next day deny him vehemently until he was nearly driven to despair. Here, his beloved queen becomes his opponent as well as his mother. So, his mother is someone he loves very much. It was Anne Bacon. He still loves her and remains close to her throughout her life. And now he discovers his true mother is the queen, who's very, very powerful. But she is also his opponent. Now, following the death of Henry VIII, going back in history, came the minor king Edward VI, the only legitimate Tudor male. He only ruled for six years from the ages of nine to 15. He might well have been poisoned. His untimely death was named to a wasting disease, but it's probably poisoned. He'd been the hope and glory of the future. In any case, then came Mary, the first firstborn daughter of Henry VIII. 
She was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, became known as Bloody Mary. Because remember, Henry VIII had taken England away from Catholicism and had created the Church of England, made himself the pontiff, the head of the Church of England, as well as the king, to rule over church and state. His wife, first wife, Mary, Catherine of Aragon, he had put away. Gave her own castles, but removed her from court. So we could hang out with Anne Boleyn, whom he later married. In case her daughter, Bloody Mary, executed many people trying to take England back to Catholicism. After five years of rule, she too, in all probability, was poisoned. In any case, Elizabeth had been put in the tower at the age of 20 by Mary, her older sister. Remember her mother, Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn, had been beheaded by Henry VIII. Henry VIII, of course, is the grandfather of Sir Francis Bacon. Elizabeth was placed in a tower, 20 years old, by her sister. She was terrified, paranoid, perhaps a borderline personality disorder. We don't know, but she has signs of paranoia, perhaps a borderline with her huge mood swings and uncertain of her identity. And when in the tower, she was uncertain, would she be queen or executed before her time? Elizabeth, as reported by Sir Francis, had an affair at 14 with Thomas Seymour, but the baby died and he later lost his head in the tower. Francis gained a deep-seated wisdom born of an understanding and tolerance of the foibles of the human comedy of the world around him. It was a duality of conduct, the sacred versus the profane, that he was to spend the rest of his life trying to help his fellow men resolve. Now, Elizabeth fell in love with Robert Dudley while in the Tower of London. Robert told her they had the same birthday and it was fated in case they found love. And she allegedly married Robert in prison by a priest, despite the bigamy, because Robert was married to Amy Robsart. In case Elizabeth now considers herself to be the legal wife of Robert Dudley, who'd been in prison for treason, who's the son of the man who'd been executed as a traitor to the British crown. When she later discovered she was pregnant as queen, she pleaded and threatened Robert until he agreed to remove the obstacle to their marriage. His wife, Amy Robsart, said Her Majesty's honor would be saved from burying a child out of wedlock. His servants contrived to make Amy's death appear to be an accident. She's found to bomb the stairs, having fallen to her death. So Amy Robsart, the wife of Robert Dudley, was in the way of him marrying Elizabeth, the queen, who was very powerful. And someone in that group is believed executed the wife, made it look like an accident. In any case, Nicholas Bacon performed the ceremony between Robert and Elizabeth in secret. Nicholas Bacon was the keeper of the seal, very powerful position in England, and lived next door to the palace. He was at the beck and call of, of Elizabeth as she needed. Francis was born four months later after the marriage in secret. So at 15, it was revealed in court that Francis was the son of the queen. This is a huge revelation step in the story of transformation. And we talked about the transformation of character in some of our earlier episodes. Here, Francis is going through a transformation from basically a commoner, as it were, who associated with the court, to becoming the next in line to the monarchy of England, a very powerful position, and changes status totally. It also changes his desire line, his self-image, 
everything about him. His adopted cousin, however, Robert Cecil, insulted him and called him a bastard. He called him the bastard son of the queen. Robert beat him and forever regret, I'm sorry, Francis beat him and forever regretted it. This happened later. He made a lifelong enemy after it came out in the court that the queen was the mother of Francis. His cousin Robert was tormenting him, calling him names, calling him a bastard. So one day Francis blew up, beat him. Remember that Robert was a disabled person. Francis had a deep conscience, profoundly regretted this. He lost control, but he also made a lifelong enemy. I like the crookback king in Shakespeare's play, Richard III, who could not be happy himself. He tried to make sure that no one else was happy. This was Robert he's referring to. He wormed his way into Elizabeth's good graces by flattery and dissimulation, by lying. So Robert Cecil, knowing that Francis was next in line, realized that Francis was a great threat to him, could easily have him dispense with. So he spent many years sucking up to the queen, becoming her counselor, and advising her that Francis was an enemy of hers and wanted to usurp the crown. So he manipulated the queen to also reject Francis. This is a very powerful opponent. Remember, in a great story, is a strong protagonist and a strong antagonist. Cecil convinced the queen that Francis was her enemy and was trying to overthrow her. At one point, the queen explained the art of keeping the majesty of royalty always fresh in the people's mind. She said, keep most often aloof. Keep your presence fresh and new. Don't appear too often to the public sight. Keep people waiting. Preserve the sunlight majesty of royalty. By always dressing in a fashion to inspire envy and admiration. Don't allow others to dress as richly as yourself. Bear yourself in a regal manner and never, no, never, commit a personal flaw or error. Some of these quotes are taken from a book called The Shakespearean Code, which you might want to read. It's really quite brilliant, quite interesting, given the history of Bacon, what he truly went through. In any case, Francis saw it differently. He kept company with the common people, so he might study them and learn how they talk to gain the language, which he later used in his writing under the pseudonym of Shakespeare. He wanted to understand their ways so he would know how to work with them. This is a polymath at work, analyzing many fields simultaneously. In any case, his mother Elizabeth chided him over beating Cecil and taught him at the role playing as a royal, which was given a moment ago. She was saying this is the way you should behave. You don't lose control. You don't blow up. You don't beat on people, not in public. In any case, to cool things down, she sent him to the French court to gain more polish and to get him out of her hair for a while because she was embarrassed about the fact that she admitted that she was his true mother. This, of course, would put her in great jeopardy, jeopardy with the court, who could easily decide to replace her with the king, or rather her husband, or Delhi, who they would make the king. He sort of was a king uh, in secret. He was married to her, but unacknowledged. In any case, Francis was sent to France. The new ambassador, ambassador 
Amias Paulet, a knight, and Captain George Bristow of the ship, the Dreadnought. He was banished from the court of London with his mother for three years. It was in the French court that he first contacted the esoteric precepts that he later wove into his Rosicrucian and Masonic activities. Remember, he brought these organizations to London at the age of 18 when he returned. He learned of these and studied these in Paris when the new Renaissance was thriving. And these he molded into an original and highly effective plan for service to the world. He landed at Calais, France on September 5th, 1576, 15 years old. He was dazzled by the French court and by King Henry. The aged queen mother was Catherine de Medici. I've heard of Medici clan. They're a very, very powerful woman in international banking and so forth. She had great power over many kings. In any case, they all honored Francis. They knew who he truly was. He met there the king's sister, Princess Marguerite, whom he fell in love with. Few have realized the, tr the entire truth. One of the most famous and enduring love stories of all time was written by Francis Bacon in celebration of his own great love. The enduring tale of Juliet and a Romeo just has witnessed this truth and is this play much of the cipher love story is portrayed. Remember, we talked about the cipher story earlier, where within the folios of his plays, Bacon revealed to the world his secret story that we're talking about. In any case, the reluctance of Marguerite to engage in even a political marriage with Navarre undoubtedly had much to do with her current love affair with the Duke of Guise. Supposedly one of the handsomest men in France, he was a member of the powerful Guy's family, of whom Mary Queen of Scots was the brightest hope. In other words, Marguerite eventually became married and was involved in an affair. Her family, the Valois, a situation which may have added spice or attraction for each other, undoubtedly was the inspiration for the feud between the Capulets and the Montagues of Romeo and Juliet. So Francis drew the basis of his stories from his own experiences of various courts around the world. Romeo and Juliet was born in Paris with his involvement with the crown there. The cyber story reveals the French princess was the first love of his life. The inspiration for Romeo and Juliet, many of his sonnets, while the portrait of Juliet in the play embodies all that was fair and noble in Marguerite, her darker nature is seen in Cressida, the unfaithful love of Trollus and Trollus and Cressida. Echoed in drama and poetry, we can see something of the sweet sorrow that afflicted Francis' heart. In other words, he experienced unrequited love. He wrote about this love in various forms, including Romeo and Juliet and the play Trollus and Cressida, showing her bright side in Juliet and her dark side in the other play. In any case, Marguerite, like Francis, had a brilliant and searching mind. She loved music, had a gift for witty repartee. She too loved poetry and could be happy for hours in reading and meditation. And of course, many men from all over the world, the courts of the world, were her suitors, or at least wished to be. Most of daring of all would have been the elegant soirees she held in her quarters at the palace. Evenings with the most talented and culture of the intelligentsia of Europe were invited for discussions on poetry, music, art, literature, mysticism, and in general, all affairs of the cultural world. This was a little esoteric academy 
much like those that were blossoming all over Europe. To these gatherings that Francis met many great poets of the world, including Pierre de Ronsard and his Pleiades, a group of poets whose mission it was to ennoble French language and literature. Francis gave Marguerite a ring. When she accepted it, he believed she was pledge, pledging her love and loyalty in return and that she would marry him. He was shocked when she turned him down. While the fervor's youth set out to arrange for the completion of the divorce proceedings between Marguerite and Navarre and to sue for his mother's permission for a wedding to take place between the Tudor Prince of Britain himself and the Valois Princess of France. So he was trying to break up Marguerite Navarre, which is very dangerous in those days. He was a 15-year-old kid playing with very powerful forces. In any case, his mother was not happy about this. She was shocked by it. In any case, one day, Marguerite's old nurse, or nanny, who is probably the prototype for Juliet's famous nurse in Juliet, Romeo and Juliet's play, drew Francis aside and whispered to him the reason Francis could not give him the fullness of her love was that it was already given, not to her husband, Navarre, but to her lover, Henry, Duke of Guise. Get rid of him, she said, and all will be well. So again, intrigue. So Romeo and Juliet was based on his love for Marguerite, caught between love and despair. At that time, she was 23 years old, married and having an affair, and he was crushed when she turned him down at 15 years old. He was in Paris when his adopted father, Nicholas Bacon, died. So at 18 years old, he returned to London, and the will of Nicholas Bacon was read. It was apparent that everybody in the family was provided for with one exception. That was Sir Francis, because Nicholas, of course, knew that he was the son of the queen. He was not going to interfere with that inheritance. It was up to the queen to provide for it. He was crushed by this, so he's basically very, very poor. He had nothing to live on. It was probably the queen's orders that Nicholas had done this to remove him from the will, keep him out of the will. So Francis remained at her beck and call. So he had no choice but to take up study of law at Gray's Inn, which his mother wanted. He was 18 years old then. He commented he did not want to be part of the law. He was bored by it. He was a poet and philosopher at heart, and a writer. Felt his time was wasted in the courts of law. So here you see the frustration of this young genius. This man is going through all his trauma and all his turmoil about his identity and forced to live a life he doesn't want by his very powerful mother. In those days, you did not, not cross the monarch. To do so is very, very dangerous. The only income of this young prince was a small stipend, stipend which she provided. So in any case, he had royal blood, inherited from the most powerful reading houses of Europe. It was a hard struggle for him to maintain control because he had to keep it secret who he really was, although some people knew close to the court, and people did not. He walked a very, very dangerous path because there would be many attempts against his life over the years. In any case, after coming back from Paris, he's at the Gray's Inn, at the Inns of Court. He was studying there, where he didn't like all he was studying. The law was boring to him, but there were many social clubs there and finishing schools for the sons of the aristocracy. He wrote several masks and Shakespearean plays during his tenure there. And the gardens of Gray's Inn were laid out by Francis in 1606 when he served as treasurer of the end, which came much later. In any case, in June of 1579, Francis began to keep his terms in Gray's Inn, kept his quarters there, stayed in the same rooms formerly used by Sir Nicholas, his adopted father. So the ends of the court were more than just law schools, they were polishing schools for the young aristocrats. 
Francis once wrote as Spencer, he used many different pseudonyms, one was Spencer, saying that the English gentleman never speaks of himself except when compelled, never defends himself by a mere retort. He has no ears for slander or gossip, interprets everything for the best. He's never mean or little in his disputes, never takes an unfair advantage. He has too much sense to be affronted at insult. He's too busy to remember injuries and does not bear malice. So in any case, he's among all these young aristocrats, influenced by them. So he's going through late adulthood, or early adulthood, rather late childhood, late adolescence into adulthood, being influenced by these individuals. But he felt lonely and rejected, much like Hamlet. That's part of the basis for the story of Hamlet, between different worlds. And Edgar Zinn, while in despair, later said he had a mystical vision that told him to speak to the world, his ideas, hidden in plays. You know, they talked about the muse, the muse who had talked to him. This, of course, is a higher mind, this higher state of consciousness, which he could access through deep concentration, deep study, which we talk about in different episodes. So he was accessing this deeper mind, which came through him and expressed his very powerful emotions brilliantly in the poetry of his plays. This was a new self-revelation that put him on a new path of life. His muse or higher self, again, he found through concentration, meditation, and prayer. That's how he accessed those higher levels of mind. Through his higher self, he wrote his plays and papers. And this also gave him the determination and power to proceed against all odds. So here we see part of the life story, a very powerful part of this young polymath, this man who's a genius who brought to the world incredible works. Remember that Bacon created the Shakespearean plays. He also wrote Novum Organum in 1620, the second organism, which is a proposition that created the scientific method, which helped transform the world through experimentation. He and his group of writers, which he formed over the years, starting to graze in, his group of writers translated all the great works of the world from Latin and Greek into English, which could then be distributed throughout the English-speaking world. He also worked under King James I, who took over the crown in 1603. He created the King James Version of the Bible, he and his group of writers. And you can see the poetry and the writing, his, his flair, his style found in the Shakespearean plays. He also helped create the Masonic and Rosicrucian orders in London, it is asserted by the, this re these references, which also flourished and helped play a huge role in the creation of the New World. Many people he trained or influenced went to the New World and helped found what became one of the greatest democracies, the greatest democracy in the world, being challenged today. But in any case, Bacon's a true polymath. We'll get back to part three later on, folks. Thanks for hanging in there with us. Come back next time. Please share this with other people. These are very powerful lessons to understand because what is revealed in the lives of these great geniuses can help everyone wake to the powers within them and bring them forth into the world. So again, Dr. Ron Dalrymple with Mind Shock, The Endless Question. Check out our film, The Endless Question, free on Amazon Prime. And our books are on Amazon as well. Eight Days of Creative Power, The Inner Manager, I Love You, God, and of course, Quantum Field Psychology. Okay, folks, great talking to you. More next time about Sir Francis Bacon and on to other life stories of other geniuses who influenced the world. Take care. See you next time. God bless.